Good evening and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. In 1971, the noted singer and philosopher Marvin Gaye recorded a blockbuster song, What's Going On?, which captured the political mood of a large portion of Americans and the vast majority of African Americans. Today, we find a similar mood in this country as many people question the state of democracy and whether the political process is being abused and misused. As we move toward the 2020 elections, we take the time tonight to talk about an assessment of what is going on with respect to the actions of elected officials as they affect and impact the rights and expectations of people. As we sit here today, there are ongoing discussions of efforts to impeach Donald Trump as president. There are widening use of racial antagonisms within the political process, and there are alarming and escalating attacks upon established political institutions and protections. Joining us tonight to discuss this topic is the NCCU resident political science expert, Dr. Jarvis Hall, a professor in the NCCU political science department. Professor Hall, we want to thank you for taking time from, I know, a very busy summer schedule uh, (laughs) to participate in this discussion. Yeah, Irvin, April, I'm happy to be here. Okay, right. Well, we're going to discuss your responses in more detail during the uh, uh, during this airing but based on your knowledge of the political process the history of the uh, federal and uh, state interactions uh, that uh, that we have going on what are your basic feelings about the present state of our democracy in this state and in this uh, in this nation, that's a very broad question. <laughs> we could <laughs> we could spend a couple of years talking about that. Um, uh, I don't want to be uh, 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 hyperbolic or anything like that, you know. But but uh, we're in a sad state of affairs. Uh, just as you said in your lead-in, um, certain institutions are under attack. Um, uh, the rights of the people, especially with regard to voting rights of uh, certain groups on the attack. Uh, people have very little trust and faith in our institutions. Um, certain issues are um, um, have been pushed to the side, especially with regard to economic and racial justice, even though there's a, a strong evidence uh, that at the grassroots level, there are efforts to, to elevate those kinds of issues. Um, we have... Uh, we have a situation at the top of our political system that uh, just makes one uh, scratch their head uh, as to, one, how we got in a situation like this. Because, you know, I often wonder, <clears throat> um, five years from now, uh, we lived through this, you know, but as we look back on it, what will we say in terms of 
what happened? How do we let that happen? And um, and when I say that, it's not just the uh, president that I'm talking about. I'm also talking about uh, uh, the Congress and 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 the legislature and uh, um, and all of the kinds of issues that appear to be challenging things that we thought were settled kinds of things, you know, like racial justice. We were going in the right direction, at least, and we seem to be falling back um, on a number of things. So it seems to me that we are having to fight some of the same battles or, or we initiate some of the same battles that we have fought years ago. And, and that troubles me. Yeah. You know, I, I, I look back at the uh, end of uh, Reconstructions, mm. uh, when at that time, African-Americans had reached their political zenith. They were at the top of their game uh, during, uh, during that time. I mean, obviously, it's not where it is today, but at that time, it was a, uh, a historic uh, event. And then there was this calculated effort to undermine uh, the whole uh, Reconstruction uh, period and to take away uh, the rights that uh, African Americans uh, enjoyed. Uh, and I see some of the trappings of the same things uh, today, uh, where now there is, uh, I guess, as a part of this second Reconstruction, uh, or third reconstruction, third. as some people uh, would call it. And African Americans have reached a zenith in terms of its historical political participation with the election of uh, uh, a president uh, of uh, African uh, descent uh, with uh, 55 uh, members of Congress today who are of African uh, descent, uh, an increase in the number of uh, Hispanics who are in the uh, legislative process, and then uh, immigrants who are in uh, the uh, congressional halls and even in North Carolina. Uh, where you have more uh, African Americans who are uh, state senators and state representatives than ever before uh, in history. Uh, do you see the same trappings that, or am I imagining uh, that, uh, that the dangers that existed and, and persisted in uh, 1898 uh, are rearing their heads uh, here uh, today, both in this state and in this country? No, I, I don't think you're on the wrong track, unfortunately. Uh, uh, I think you're on the right track. I think that what it shows is that um, American history is cyclical, uh, that uh, there's progress, as we would define progress, and, and then there's a backlash to it. And, um, and sometimes the people who are... Um, uh, uh, the beneficiaries of the progress, either they become complacent or they uh, um, uh, they think that things are okay um, and that they have arrived. And I say that to say that they're not as uh, diligent as they should be in terms of protecting those rights and trying to advance those rights. Don't get to a, a plateau and think that you have made it. And uh, so I think that uh, when we look at what we are experiencing now, um, just as you just outlined, um, unprecedented success politically to a large extent economically and socially. Uh, at the same time, we see the dangers are brewing there uh, for this backlash. And the backlash has certainly already started. Um, and it's no mistake that it started uh, around the time of the election of Barack Obama, even before in, uh, uh, in, um, in 2008. And uh, uh, especially when we look at... Um, 
voter suppression efforts because that's one of the things that you attempt to do is to take the voting the uh, the political power away from certain groups. And when we look at voter suppression efforts, uh, clearly we can trace those back to uh, Barack Obama or even before. Uh, you, you know, but certainly they accelerated after the election of uh, Barack Obama. You know, you know. So um, yeah, I think you 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 are. Uh, you're hitting the nail on the head, and uh, we have to be vigilant and diligent in terms of um, seeing those trends, uh, but at the same time trying to figure out exactly what are we going to do in order to combat it. And, you know, kind of uh, along the same lines in terms of we're seeing the same things over and over again, the use of race as a political tool to, to you know, uh, try to get political gains so you um, demonize certain groups. And just recently here in North Carolina, when you had Trump holding a rally here, you had the chance um, send her back. And, and this, you know, when we think about the squad and the statements that the uh, that Trump has made against four women of color who are Congress women. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's something that we continuously see whenever, as Irv noted, we've got these political gains and power that is uh, in the hands of those that have been oppressed. And then you see the use of race to mm-hmm. try and undermine that. Can you talk about that a little bit? And that is a classic uh, um, way to um, sabotage uh, progressive change. Uh, we certainly saw it during the latter part of the uh, uh, of the 19th century, going to the 20th century, as the populist movement, which was an interracial movement, and the success that it experienced here in North Carolina, uh, especially in Wilmington, and how race was used used as a convenient wedge in order to divide uh, um, um, uh, blacks and whites, who at at some point observed and acted on their common interests. Uh, but race, again, is used as a wedge to divide them. And it is a convenient one uh, because it's, it's, it's been around. It works. Um, you can look at people who are not doing as well as they thought they should be doing, you know, and, and it's easy to point to the other to explain why that is. Uh, you know, you don't have that job because of them. Uh, you don't have the education that you have uh, because of them. You don't have the opportunities uh, that you should have uh, because of them. And and unfortunately, it is something that has worked. So something we're not doing with respect to our culture, our national culture, our education system that is that hasn't combated that as we should have. Um, and, uh, and, and as long as race is a convenient way to divide people, it will continue to be. And you have people who are willing to take advantage of it, especially at the top. I mean, we have somebody at the top now, and I'm talking about the president of the United States, who um, uh, recognizes that. Uh, you can question his, uh, his political acumen and his intellect and all of that, you know, but that's something he has a clear understanding of is the role that race and color and ethnicity can play in terms of working to the political advantage of certain individuals and especially himself. Well, you know, the the, the, the troubling, a troubling part, I was going to say the troubling part, but just a troubling part of all of that is the uh, entrenched and intense support that this president is receiving from people out in the boondocks. Uh, and by the boondocks, I include uh, Greenville, 
North Carolina, uh, where he came and had a audience of what eight thousand uh, people yeah. or, or so, mm-hmm. uh, who eagerly joined into as uh, as as April uh, mentioned this chant of "Send them back, send them back," with absolutely uh, no knowledge of the backgrounds of these uh, uh, these these in, these individuals. And so while Trump standing alone uh, has presented this racist uh, front, uh, and of course he doesn't have a, a racist bone in his body. <laughs> Not one. Uh, he, 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 he said. But then you have all these minions uh, who are either elected officials or uh, mm-hmm. People who are out there voting, who are entrenched and dynamic. How, how do you explain uh, that that dynamic? Well, the uh, the Republican Party in particular made a deal with the devil, uh, and especially uh, with the um, um, with with Nixon's Southern strategy uh, that race could be used as a way to, at that time, to break the stronghold that that the Democratic Party had on the South. And uh, uh, Republicans, even those non-racist uh, Republicans, uh, sort of knew this, but with, uh, but with a wink and a nod saying this is working for us politically. And, and, you know, they were willing to sort of look the other way sometimes when you had the crazies over here yelling, you know, you know uh, uh, racial things and, uh, and using race overtly. Um, in political campaigns, but as long as it was working for the for the party on the national level, in Congress, and at the legislative level, they were sort of okay with it. But as long as we could sort of keep them over here, but now it's sort of uh, more uh, overt. It's more prevalent. It's clearer to even those in the Republican Party, and uh, they have let the. Uh, 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 horse out of the uh, stable, so to speak, and, you know, they can't pull it back. And you have so many who are trying to because they said, this is not my Republican Party, but it is. It is a Republican Party that they played a role in creating in terms of the modern Republican Party, especially in the South, and the use of race in order to gain uh, the uh, political stronghold that they've had really since the Nixon years. Well, you know, the... uh and, and, and race seemingly isn't the only barrier uh, that, uh, that they're dealing with. I mean, race is clearly something that, that's divisive uh, and is being used, I think it's what they call it, weaponizing, weaponizing. Uh, race <laughs> uh, now to, uh, to be used to break up uh, the coalition or the progressive coalition or the fusion uh, movement that seemingly exists now within the so-called democratic uh, 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 party. Uh, what other areas is this president in je- uh, jeopardizing our democratic process through and by? Uh, the democratic process itself, yes. and and um, and inherent in that, of course, would be the checks and balances that exist, right? And when we look at the uh, numerous investigations that are going on surrounding this president. I lose count. You need a program in order to know how I many. I think it's 17 right now or something like that. Uh, his, um, um, his complete ignoring of subpoenas uh, from uh, a co-equal branch of government, the uh, Congress, and uh, um, um, 
you know, and telling his people to ignore these subpoenas. So the checks and balances um, is what is at danger here. And that is the foundation of our democratic process. And for Donald Trump, a uh, self-proclaimed billionaire uh, who uh, runs a relatively small family business, uh, small family business, but with a big name, uh, Trump is on everything. He's not used to these uh, checks and balances. He's used to um, um, he's used to essentially being able to do uh, what he wants to do. So when you look at that and transfer that into foreign policy, for example, that helps to explain why he uh, uh, he has more um, allegiance or he likes uh, you know the uh, strong men, because it is almost always men, strong men around the world. And so in terms of the United States representing uh, supposedly that, you know, the shining um, house or light on the hill, whatever they say, uh, for democracy um, and being that example of what a democracy is supposed to be, that has greatly diminished uh, because of the actions and the words of um, of uh, Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, he seems to uh, have a, uh, a lot of disdain for democracy, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, uh, another important question related to that is, what will he do? And if this election comes up and he loses, will he respect the results of the election Uh and actually peacefully step down? That's right. This is the Legal Legal uh, (laughs) Review. And our guest tonight, uh, Dr. Jarvis Hall, uh, political scientist and uh, uh, our political guru at the uh, Political Science Department at North Carolina Central University School of Law. We're discussing, uh, kind of uh, talking about a a mid-year political assessment of uh, where we're at in this uh, state and in this country. I want you to uh, stay with us as we take a break right now, and we'll be right back. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us where we're doing uh, kind of a mid-year political assessment of where our democracy is. And uh, we have as our guest our uh, political guru and expert at North Carolina Central University, Dr. Uh, Jarvis Hall, uh, who is uh, sharing uh, his uh, impressions of where we are today and his, his historic knowledge of the political process and uh, and what appears to be uh, on the uh, on the horizon, um, one of you know because you, you you ended up talking about the uh, balance of power mm-hmm. and the three branches of government and checks and balances mm-hmm. and and all of uh, all all of those things, and you would think that in our nation as we were taught that you have the judicial branch uh, that interprets. Laws, and you have the uh, congressional or legislative branch that uh, enact laws, and then the uh, executive will uh, execute uh, those uh, laws. Have are you aware of a time in our history where a a president has ever significantly demeaned the court system and called them out uh, on? 
their role and function and at the same time demean and call out the legislative branches on its role and, and function in our democratic process. No. <laughs> and then that's the, that's the answer to that. There are so many uh, unprecedented things that are taking place. There's so many challenges to uh, basic democratic norms uh, that have taken place. And unfortunately, uh, if this goes on uh, too long, we would normalize that. And the old norms would be out the window and, and the new norm would be the norm. And uh, But, yeah, um, this is a president uh, who has attacked individual judges uh, because of their um, um, ethnicity and uh, uh, suggesting that it, um, it would disqualify them to render objective um, uh, decisions, especially regarding him, <laughs> and um, who has uh, attacked certain circuits of the court and, you know, and labeled them with a... Uh, um, um, a political label, you know, and and suggesting that they uh, are not qualified to uh, uh, decide certain issues and especially things like the uh, you know, the Muslim ban and you know and things of that nature, and um, um, and even in his even more official capacity, uh, what he has actually done to the federal bench itself, and you know, as you all know that the legacy of Donald Trump is uh, not necessarily going to be the tax cuts or his attack against uh, uh, um, Obamacare. Those things will be important, you know, but what he's doing to the federal bench in terms of the uh, judges that uh, he's, he's been able to appoint up and down the line, the Supreme Court, and um, and how he's, uh, I won't use the term stacked yet, but, but how he's certainly created a Supreme Court that is uh, very, very conservative. And, uh, and we know that his promise to do that went a long way in terms of his election as president of the United States. I think that was a masterstroke. I don't know if it was his idea, but, but just saying up front that these are the kinds of judges that uh, I will appoint. And you had so many people who, again— were able to put on blinders, you know, to turn an eye to his other antics and and all the other stuff surrounding him, you know, and say, this is a guy that we want to put in because we know that he's going to appoint these kinds of judges. And that would be the legacy. That would be the uh, way that certain uh, uh, certain conservative and less progressive powers will, will, will be actually able to hold on to power, even if even after they are out of elected office, they'll still have the courts. And, you know, that that raises a question about whether that strategy will continue to be successful in 2020, because that's going to be, you know, I don't think it was really on the Democrats uh, radar screen. uh, Unfortunately not. 2016. Right. Um, But we've got two justices on the court, two left-leaning justices. So Justice Ginsburg is 86 and Justice Breyer is 80. And so it's going to be there for us. Well, we, <laughs> you know, God, God willing. But but yeah, this yeah. kind of gets back to the 2020 election. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, right. And so the question is, you know, less about, um, you know, are, are they going to remain on the bench for, you know, the next you know year or so? The question is, who will be in office in 2020 if and when? Uh, one or both of them decide to, you know, to retire. Mm -hmm. And so when you talk about the legacy and the impact that 
his presidency will have on the on the court. Can you talk a little bit about kind of going into 2020, um, the the role that um, the court has played in the Republican strategy and, and why it may have been or why it is that it doesn't seem to, to seem to play that same type of role when you think about the Democrats. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 that has been one of the quandaries for the progressive side is how do you convince the, the grassroots that the court is also important? Uh, when you talk about grassroots politics, I usually think of uh, that which is more democratic within our political institutions, which would be the presidency and certainly the legislative branches, either at, at the uh, uh, at the federal level or the legislative level. So that has been the focus. But I'm hoping that uh, uh, there'll be a little flip with regard to this, that uh, uh uh, the argument that you just made about the possibility, the real possibility of two seats opening up within the next couple of years, that uh, uh, it can become one among a number of political issues um, on the political left and for progressives. Um, uh, it's, uh, uh, I think the feeling has been that uh, the courts have, have established uh, and it's accepted law that uh, a woman's right to choose, that's settled law, right? Um, uh, Brown versus Board of Education, that's settled law, right? Uh, a number of other things that we take for granted, that's settled law. So we don't have to deal with that anymore. We have to deal with these other issues around economic justice and social justice and, and, um, and stuff like that, but not knowing that underpinning all of that are decisions made by the court. Okay, so uh, candidates today have to make that argument. Uh, I don't think it's a very difficult argument to make, especially now that they are a able to see that elections matter and matter not just in terms of um, elected office, but also the courts. Uh, and they and, and again, that would be the enduring legacy of any elected official that has the ability to appoint judges and justices is what happens on the court because of the lifetime tenure that uh, they have on the federal level. So um, uh, I don't know if they were going to borrow, if many of the candidates, if they should win or if they become the nominee um, for the Democratic Party will borrow a page from the Trump campaign, meaning they will actually float a list of possible judges. I don't know if they'll do that, but certainly they need to have a conversation about why this is important. And these are the kinds of people that that if, if I'm the nominee, I would actually put on the court. Yeah. And, you know, just to underscore the point that you're making about things that that people think are settled, like, you know, uh, the <laughs> right reproductive yeah, rights yeah, 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 or yeah. or even when we think about Brown. Right. So Trump is nominating individuals who, who when don't they, say, <laughs> say they support Brown. Exactly. That's right. Exactly. I, I don't want to answer that question. That's a, 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 almost as if it, yeah. it's a case that may come before them. Right. Exactly. I mean, cause that's when they usually avoid, uh, talk, you know, right. uh, talking about certain cases, mm -hmm. you know, so. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's scary when you think about yeah, it. Right. And, but you have uh, a political atmosphere where a part of the uh, political calculus is to uh, identify just those bedrock principles that they are going to attack and that they are seeking to undermine. 
mm-hmm. you know, like the right of the woman to choose. Mm-hmm. And uh, 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 political candidates now are campaigning on overturning or having the court to overturn that precedent. And Brown versus Board yeah, of Education sure. is just one, uh, mm-hmm. one of those uh, things that's on the uh, on the chopping block. Mm-hmm. Uh, with and you 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 kind of uh, strayed away from it, but from a stacked. Mm-hmm. court process mm-hmm. or a process mm-hmm. in which the court is being stacked mm-hmm. uh, with individuals who are of that uh, of that mindset. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, the whole notion of stare decisis, you know, let the decision stand, maybe, you know, thrown out the window with the uh, with the kind of court that we have now and, and the kinds of issues that may come before them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when we think about this whole notion of stacking the court, right, you can't you know, you you have to think about uh, President Obama nominating Merrick Garland uh, when Justice yeah. Scalia's mm-hmm. seat was vacant. And yeah. so the nature of the court and who, you know, is in the majority in terms of leaning left or right yeah. all goes back to, to that point. So when we think about it, and Jarvis, you were talking about this concern about our institutions. And, you know, when you've got these political gamesmanship uh, positions, th- that's those are things that. Um, erode faith in the institutions. Yeah, I, I mean, there are already discussions about, say we have a Democrat that wins the presidency, but, but Republicans hold the Senate still. Will Mitch McConnell bring up any nominee mm-hmm. yeah. for consideration? Yeah. That's a real question now, mm-hmm. especially after the Merrick Garland thing. Mm-hmm. You know, now that that really brings, you know, the question that 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 is another issue regarding our political institutions and things that we accepted as norms that are being, you know, um, attacked. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and there, there is no way to change this process without changing the actors who are at these various levels. Elections you know, matter. Yeah, elections uh, matter. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. you know, you have to uh, get rid of someone like a uh, McConnell, yeah. uh, who uh, is uh, probably the most partisan and <laughs> conservatively race, racially <laughs> oriented so, yeah. uh, uh, Speaker of the House. I mean, Senate. Yeah. <laughs> and, and in that situation, you have to uh, um, uh, turn the Senate itself. So, yeah. Even if McConnell's not there, uh, it could be somebody who's uh, uh, worse. I don't know who, who's next in line. Maybe um, a corner from Texas or something like that. You know, but but the point is, whoever's in the majority, that's who the majority leader will be, and uh, that would be. And that person will det- that person determines the schedule and what would be heard before the Senate, including the consideration of nominations. And that's a very very powerful. In a position as we know. And, and so that's why, yes, elections matter and they are connected because what happens in North Carolina is connected to Texas, it's connected to Massachusetts, because all that determines who will actually have control over the uh, Senate. Yeah. The strength of the democracy, however, is dependent in large part on the people. Yes. Uh, That's what they say. And in <laughs> and in this country and in this state, in particular, what fifty percent of the people have opted out of mm-hmm. even participating, possibly in the system. And <laughs> since what less than fifty percent of the citizens are registered yeah. uh, to vote, and then in any and if you win by fifty percent, that means twenty five percent of the people are selecting. Yeah, yeah. And get, get so, so what is it? that the people 
have to do or have the people lost faith in the democracy that's advertised? A lot of people never have faith uh, <laughs> uh, because in their lifetime, uh, a lot of them have experienced Watergate, you know, and, and all kinds of different scandals and, and, um, and what have you. And, um, uh, and a lot of them are losing more faith in, um, um, in, in the political process and the role that they could play. What, what concerns me is that, especially in terms of this election, some people consider it a done deal, a fait complete that, that he's going to win. I, I've heard that so many times already. The bottom line, based upon what we know about the electorate, is that there are more people opposed to Trump than are in favor of Trump. It's just that the people who are in favor of Trump, they're more mobilized, they're more act, uh, more activated, more uh, 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 agitated, if you will, to get out for him. Whereas this larger group over here, you have some people who uh, just don't participate. They think, uh, again, it's a done deal that whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Well, yes, it is if you, you know, if if you don't participate. And I've heard that so much over the last few weeks that he's going to win. Um, there was a, a reanalysis of the Electoral College by the New York Times. And, he's, you know, uh, he has a possibility to have an even larger um, margin in the Electoral College. Mm -hmm. So um, and also structural things that we need to talk about, like the Electoral College, too, mm -hmm. which, which is going to be hard, as we know. I mean, uh, because it's a part of the Constitution. And, uh, but um, we need to make voting more accessible. That will help, as opposed to trying to suppress the vote. Um, uh, we need better civic education of our children. Uh, you, you know, and I say children because once they get, you know, to high school and to college, I won't say it's too late, but it's hard to sort of turn them from being um, inactive to active. And uh, so we need to do a number of things at different levels in order to change this. But, yes, the people can make a difference. And as I say, elections matter. That Even if structurally everything stayed the same, elections do matter. But if people participated sort of at levels that they did in uh, – 2018 in the midterm elections and actually came out in large numbers and especially in certain communities, it could mean a real change in the way things are going on. And uh, that kind of change could lead to uh, differences with regard to public policy. Ultimately, that's it, what happens in terms of public policy. And what happens in terms of public policy is a direct result of, um, of the elections. And, of course, we have redistricting coming up. You know, which which is a biggie. <laughs> you know, because that certainly determines who gets in and and um, um, and who does not. Okay. And uh, so we need more grassroots participation in um, in the redistricting process. It's not just an elite exercise. Uh, redistricting is a uh, state level matter. Uh, we are talking with uh, Dr. Jarvis Hall. Uh, political guru at uh, North Carolina Central University School of Law, uh, North Carolina Central <laughs> University. I've been we promoted. Want, we, want to, we want to have him at the, uh, at, at the School of Law, certainly. Uh, his wisdom, where we're doing a uh, kind of mid-year uh, political assessment of where 
this uh, democracy is. We're going to continue this discussion with uh, Dr. Hall after we take a uh, quick break. So stay with us and we'll be right back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with Dr. Jarvis Hall, professor at the NCCU Political Science Department. And we've been talking about the state of political affairs in our country and um, in our state. And um, Jarvis, right before the break, you were talking about the importance of redistricting, which is coming up. Um, And I know we're going to dive deeper into that. But I wanted to go back just a little bit. You mentioned the Electoral College. And when we talk about, you know, if we look at Trump's approval ratings, and we know that there are more that disapprove of him than approve of him, and we know that he lost the popular vote in 2016. And even if he loses the popular vote in uh, 2020, there's still a chance that he could be president because of the Electoral College. And when we're thinking about the Electoral College, and I think this kind of goes to your point where there are some people that say, one, he's already predestined to win uh, because of the Electoral College. And uh, my vote doesn't matter because when we think about the Electoral College, there are only but so many states that are in play. Mm-hmm. So, for example, as as populous as California is, that's a state that's generally not in play. And so there's not a lot of mm-hmm. campaigning that's going on at the national level. And then on the other side, you've got, you know, really small states that um, aren't in play just because they are so small. And so when we think about these battleground or swing states, um, North Carolina is one of them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so when we think about the importance of voting in this state, can you talk a little bit about um, a little bit more about the importance of the Electoral College and how if you're in one of these swing states and, and these kind of swing counties, how mm. your vote, um, the importance of your vote is actually kind of outsized? Yeah, I mean, uh, North Carolina's a relatively... Uh, it, it's not a huge state, obviously, but but uh, uh, 15 electoral votes, right? Yeah, yeah, 15 electoral votes, and and so within the scheme of things, that's you know it's pretty good. It doesn't compare to California, New York, any place like that, you know. But uh, certainly, as compared to Georgia and um, and Virginia and, uh, and states uh, mid Atlantic, and certainly more than in the Deep South. So, uh, and just as you said, it is in play simply because. Uh, of the um, division in terms of um, voter registration between uh, Democrats and Republicans, and actually the largest uh, uh, group, uh, well, the uh, fastest growing group in terms of um, uh, voter registration would not be either party, but would be independents. And so there's, you know, that makes North Carolina very attractive. uh, for presidential candidates, you know, to come here and to spend a little time here. Um, uh, even though you say North Carolina's a purple state, you know, because, you know, that's what, that's the color they use with reference to, you know, the swing states. Uh, because of the legislature, uh, uh, because of the congressional um, uh 
um, delegation and, and, you know, how skewed it is uh, toward the Republican Party. The view is that North Carolina is very red, uh, but it's becoming less red. And it's becoming less red in part because of demographic changes within the cities. And so um, what you're going to have, I think, is some attention being paid to, you know, urban areas, to the Triangle, the Triad, Charlotte. Uh, uh, Trump may give a little attention to uh, the East. That's why he was in Greenville. Uh, that's why in 2016 he went to Kenansville, I believe mm-hmm. it was, um, which is not too far from my hometown. Uh, so he's going to make an appeal because he, he he knows if he's going to win North Carolina, he has to win there. He has to win uh, out west with the exception of Buncombe County and Watauga County. Um, uh, but uh, a Democrat will have to have a strong um, outsized showing in urban areas in the uh, I-85 corridor, uh, Triangle, Triad, Charlotte. And, um, you know, and then have some good showing in um, Buncombe County, which is Asheville, uh, Watauga County, which which, which uh, Appalachian State, I think, is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and maybe some other places. Uh, so uh, North Carolina looks very attractive to a, to a, a candidate that is really... Uh, if it's a Democratic candidate trying to turn it certainly more uh, blue. And for Trump, because of the very conservative uh, East and far West and some pockets in the middle, it's very attractive for him, too. And because of the number of electoral votes that exist uh, here, which is relatively large compared to some other states. Yeah, well, and, and looking at that uh, explanation that you that you provided, then it uh Enhances the uh, importance of uh, of Durham, mm-hmm. Greensboro, uh, Winston Salem, and Elizabeth City, where we have HBCU uh, lo- 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 located, and then uh, also then uh, argues for uh, robust participation by students, students yeah. on those uh, on those campuses because they mm-hmm. can be huge political uh, yeah. uh, blocks. Uh, that uh, can be used, and uh, are students aware one of their power uh, to uh, Im- impact uh, these uh, elections, and do they have the the will and uh, uh, energy necessary to go out and encourage their uh, classmates uh, to participate in making this democracy what is advertised mm-hmm. for it to be. That's a good question. I, 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 um, um, I have to say I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I hope the answer would be yes, you know. But but occasionally, uh, uh, you know, it's a very uh, changing population, and, and so you have new students coming in all the time, and um, even students who may, uh, as a result of time on a particular campus, may become politicized, you know. By the time you get them where you want them in terms of their consciousness and, and activism, then a whole new group comes in. You, you know, so what to me that tells uh, uh, that tells me that we ha- we have to have mechanisms on campus that will automatically help to uh, politicize and not in any partisan way, but 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 just this is the political process. This is the role that you can play. This is the role that you should play uh, as a student, 
as an educated person, as somebody concerned with the quality of life of, of people on campus, as well as the surrounding campuses, as well as your home areas, these are some of the things that you should do. Just educate them about what they can do. I don't think we do uh, an adequate job, including on this campus, I say it, in terms of creating that kind of citizen, uh, uh, creating somebody that when they leave here, they're different from when they came in. That you know, mm-hmm. you, you know that that regards to whether they're a political science major or uh, a physics major or an English major, they have some sense of the role that they can play in order to um, have an impact. On the political process. And, and, and the role that they should play uh, exactly. in, in going exactly. forward, you know, in exactly. terms of moving out of the, the junior varsity uh, yeah, league yeah, of yeah. High, high school into the adult yeah, uh, yeah. and varsity world of uh, participation in the development of the yeah. uh, of the community. You know, it's interesting. You, you talk about the, the red states. Uh, North Carolina, you say, is a red state. Some people say it's a purple, purple yeah. uh, 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 state. But they never say it's blue. Do they? Uh, they ne- <laughs> and, 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 and one of the reasons for that is the uh, minimal participation yeah. on the part of people from those areas that would make it a, uh, a, a, yeah. a, a, a blue state. Because when you look at the legislature in North Carolina, it is decidedly red. <laughs> yeah. That's right. But but and that raises the question, right? Is it decidedly red because the the majority of the people who vote are are red or is it decidedly red because of the way that the maps the are maps drawn? Are yeah. Right? But the maps are drawn that way uh, <laughs> because, you know, the, 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 the people who can change the map makers mm-hmm. aren't participating in a uh, robust yeah. uh, manner, yeah. and if we mm-hmm. get uh, you know get some robustness uh, <laughs> here, and that's we, why we need to uh, uh, de-elite. The I just invented a word. <laughs> 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 we need to de-elite the uh, um, that process. I mean, I mean, because again, it's it's one of those rules of the game that you sort of accept and you don't think about changing or altering, um, where you would have more grassroots people actually involved in the process. Um, actually have Miss Maybell come in with a map, you know, and you know, and say this is my neighborhood and uh, and it should be uh <laughs> and it should, <laughs> and it should be uh um uh it should look like this um with regard to uh um the um, school board or whatever map they're looking at. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so um uh we need that kind of thing, and even if these maps are, aren't accepted, at least those elites who are making the final decisions will know, you know, that they can't. That some light has been uh, uh, shown on the process, and uh, that they can't do it in the dark anymore. And all of a sudden, uh, put on the website, these are the maps now, and and uh, and we're going to go with that, even though we know there'll probably be challenge, you know. Uh, well, and this takes us back to the Supreme Court, right? And when yeah. we think, because what we're talking about is partisan gerrymandering, mm-hmm. right? And so, in the drawing of the maps in such a way that you can maximize the um, the the uh, outcome based on who's in in control, control, not based on what the the people necessarily within that jurisdiction wants. Because when you know that partisan gerrymandering is is working for those who have drawn the maps in a skewed way, is when you look at 
the percentages based on just the raw votes. So you may have based on, you know, um, the people who voted, uh, the Democrats won, say, you know, 50 percent and the Republicans 50 percent. But the Republicans control 70 percent of the legislature. So it's not representative of the people. And that's that's the problem with partisan gerrymandering. But we've got a Supreme Court that just decided in a 5-4 decision that 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 they cannot reach a conclusion Mm -hmm. that that's unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. And so and that goes directly back to who replace Justice Scalia, because if President Obama had the opportunity to fill that seat, it probably would have gone the other way, which would make North Carolina's legislature much different. Yeah, 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 yeah. we have a uh, um, um, unconstitutionally constituted (laughs) legislature like we do, (laughs) as far as I'm concerned. But but in in terms of, of, of controlling our little corner of the world, Mm-hmm. Uh, if uh, there was uh, uh, enhanced participation on the part of, of, of the people, then a lot of that, we could undo the, uh, uh, the, the the Supreme Court decision saying it's in their hands because then it would be yeah. in the hands so, yeah. of some different people. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, and, uh, and related to that, uh, um, I hear people say, well, uh, we participated, but nothing changes. <laughs> My argument is we've never participated at the levels we really could or should. I mean, we've had some good years and some not so good years, but we've never had the level of participation that we could have. So let's just try it and see mm-hmm. what happens to see if there is real change. And, uh, you know, because, again, going back to, you know, the axiom that we know, elections matter. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you know, know, you know <laughs> doing Reconstruction, you had participation yeah. by African Americans at the true. level of eighty-five to ninety percent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, both in terms of yeah. registering yeah. and then going yeah. out uh, to uh, actually uh, yeah. vote. Yeah. Uh, you, you didn't have a fifty percent cut uh, turn uh, right, right, right. drop off yeah, in right. terms of who was even going yeah. to register mm-hmm. uh, because they understood what the absence of voting would mean to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And a lot of people now don't understand what the absence of voting really means to them, and they suffer the consequences. And, you know, that goes back to this whole notion of voter suppression, right? Because, you know, Reconstruction, when you had voting levels so high, um, what did you see uh, those in power attempt to do and successfully do to try and depress the black vote, which is to employ, you know, poll taxes and literacy tests? And then once those, you know, were ultimately declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, then you had other things that were being done to try and suppress the vote. And and we see that today. And this kind of, I mean, this is something that, you know, has been a theme whenever we talk about politics. Um, and Irv, you started off in your introduction about uh, when you've got political power, what is being done to take political power away from minorities? And Jarvis, you were talking about the cyclical notion of, you know, what's being done. And when we think about voter suppression today, we see it in terms of voter ID laws. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about where, the, you know, from a historical perspective, uh, why that exists and um, and is it going to be, why is it successful in reducing the votes of um, not just everyone, but particularly those people who are kind of in marginalized communities? Uh, yeah, it depends upon what, what kinds of IDs are acceptable. And 
typically you think of a driver's license, and a lot of people say, well, everybody has a driver's license. Everybody does not. Does not. The reality yeah. is everybody does not have a, have a driver's license. Uh, in the original Monster uh, Voter Suppression uh, law that was passed here in North Carolina 2013, I think it was, yeah. uh, they didn't accept the uh, um, student IDs. Student, student IDs. IDs. Yeah. And, and so, so uh, <clears throat> student IDs from state issues. From state issues, yeah. So, <laughs> Institutions. So, 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 so when you see a legislature like ours, uh, who, who, as the court would say, uh, with surgical precision targeted the black community, uh, that tells you that they know that it could make a difference, especially when you look at some of the margins of these elections. Uh, a few hundred votes here and there, uh, even less, could make a difference between winning and losing. And uh, and they realize that. And uh, so the Republicans instituted, you know, risk, uh, the red state strategy, you know, and they were able to execute it. I don't know if we have anything comparable on the, uh, uh, on the progressive side where uh, there's a concerted, coordinated, well-resourced effort, uh, you know, you know, to put in people who are progressive and like-minded with regard to those kinds of things in positions of power, and not just always in the glamorous positions. The president, no, school no board, <laughs> county it. commission, yeah, and work your way up. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah, you know, you know, and that's also related to uh, the recruitment of people who actually run for positions. People don't want to run for positions anymore. They see. Uh, politics that's corrupt, you know, and dirty and, you know, not very lucrative. Yeah. And, you know, and that may be the case in terms of in terms of money or you know, yeah. anything like that. But but it was always said a politician who is poor is a poor politician. Yeah. Right. And, 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 and those examples are rampant. But let me just just raise this question. Now. Does the two party system hinder Uh-oh. the pursuit <laughs> Of uh, of democracy because you talked about all of the independent people and in our time is running out. So good. <laughs> well, quick quick response. That's a good question. A two party system has some problems. When we look at democracies around the world, they're multi party systems. You have more choices, but the, but the choices themselves are real. Real right now, the way it's structured, if you're outside a two party system, your chances of winning are nil, nil almost. Yeah, yeah. There are some examples of uh, uh, Bernie Sanders uh, 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 would be one, but, of course, he's running as a Democrat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, so the party structure gives certain uh, wherewithal to those who run under that banner. And, and so that's what makes it attractive and uh, not attractive for people who, who want to run uh, as independents. But it certainly narrows, you know, the policy options, Um some people said a long time ago that you know, there's not a dime's worth of difference between the two major political parties. You know, one is Tweedledee and one is Tweedledum, but, but which one is D and which one is dumb, <laughs> right? You, you know, so, um, uh, and some people even more cynical would say, of course, that the uh, two parties are just two wings of a, of a corporate uh, party, you, you know, so there's, again, not real difference when many of the policy issues like universal health care, universal uh, 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 college may fall outside of the range that both parties are in. Mm -hmm. And and so we have to think about independent political efforts. And those efforts have bubbled up from time to time, mm -hmm. uh, but not a lot. Mm -hmm.
Well, all right, all right. Um, unfortunately, we're out of time, but we're going to have many discussions about the political state, especially coming up on an election year. But we'd like to thank you, Dr. Jarvis Hall, as always, for being <laughs> such a great guest. And, yeah, thank and you for having me. Always, <laughs> always. He is a political science professor here at North Carolina Central University. And as always, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for taking time out of your Sunday evening and sharing it with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you've learned something. Um, if you have any questions or comments or a topic that you'd like for us to cover, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And we're also happy to announce that you can find this show on iTunes and listen to it on any of your podcast listening apps of your choice. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed and engaged.